When it was released in 2007, Michael Clayton was favourably compared to the conspiracy thrillers of the 1970s, such as The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor and The China Syndrome. However, it is just as much a conspiracy thriller as it is a character study wrapped inside of one. Don't believe me? The film's writer-director, Tony Gilroy, could easily have given it a generic title, The Fixer, or to use another quote from the script, The Bagman. But instead, Gilroy opted to name his film after the main character, and in so doing, made Clayton just as much the focus of the story as the conspiracy. Still don't believe me? Look at the film's final shot and see how long it lasts. Scripts focusing on characters, as opposed to, say, high-concept plots, are much more attractive to actors who are more interested in acting rather than exclusively being a star. So it is important to note at this point that the script was initially offered to Denzel Washington. As fine an actor as Washington is, I think he was right to say no. I don't think the part would have fitted him. His persona is too confident to believe he could be someone so prematurely defeated by his career. So it was offered to George Clooney. He's not a litigator. He's not a, a trial lawyer. He's a, he's a fixer. He's the guy that um, he started out with probably some pretty high ambitions to doing uh, for being a, a trial lawyer. But along the way, what he really becomes is a fixer and a bag man. Believe me now? Anyway, Clooney said no, but for a different reason than Washington. Clooney felt uncomfortable working with a first-time director. Yes, at that stage, Tony Gilroy had not directed a feature film, much less one with a budget of $25 million. But that is not to say that he was a complete novice. He had already established himself as a very accomplished screenwriter, penning such films as Dolores Claiborne and The Devil's Advocate, as well as the phenomenally successful Jason Bourne series. In addition to that, Gilroy's script had attracted the attention of no less than three Oscar-winning directors. Steven Soderbergh, who has made five films of Clooney, and won an Oscar for directing Traffic. Then there's Antony Mengele, who did The English Patient, and Sidney Pollock, who made Out of Africa. Now, none of these men wished to direct Gilroy's script. They knew Gilroy wanted to, but they so believed in the script that they were willing to serve and support the picture in various guises as producers. In fact, Sidney Pollock took an acting role in the film. I had no idea you were so unhappy. How many times did I ask you to put me back on a litigation team? Hey, How many times? Anybody can go to court. You think that's so special? I was good at it. Wonderful. So are a lot of people. At this, what you do, you're great. For Christ's sakes, Michael, you got something everybody wants. You have a niche. You made a place. You made a niche for yourself. And if it's nostalgia, oh boy, you should have seen me when I was a DA back in Queens. Let me give you a serious piece of advice. Leave it there. God forbid you're not as good as you remember, because I've seen that happen too. When we first see Michael Clayton, he is at a late night backroom card game. By the look on his face, Clayton isn't playing for fun. He is playing to win, only he isn't. He is losing and losing badly. And that is what he will do for the rest of the film. He will continue to gamble, not just as money, but also his friendships, his relationships, his son, his family, and his job, until he all but loses the most important thing to any person, his sense of self. Gilroy initially disguises this struggle by having Clayton's friend, Arthur Edens, played brilliantly by Tom Wilkinson, as the man who is most visibly in the throes of an emotional, spiritual, and physical breakdown. The reason? 
the toxic lawsuit he is involved in. I've spent 12% of my life destroying perfect Anna and her dead parents and her dying brother. When was the last time you took one of these? No, 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 no. I'm not losing this. Everything is now finally significant. The world is a beautiful and radiant place. I'm not trading that for this. If it's real, the pill won't kill it. I have blood on my hands. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice! You are a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. Once that is established, the story then shifts to Karen Crowder, superbly played by Tilda Swinton, in a performance that earned her an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Karen is um, one of those very unexotic people who is uh, on the verge of committing heinous crimes every minute of every day and just slips over one day. Uh, she's a kind of, she's a corporate criminal of a very ordinary kind. I think there are a lot of people in, in all sorts of high business situations who will sympathize with the kind of panic attack she has. Swinton has referred to her character as a really bad actress, and that is an accurate summation. Swinton's performance may be an honest portrayal, but as a person, as a character, Crowder is a complete fake. She has no idea who she really is. But through Clayton's encounter with her, we see the theme of realisation and redemption slowly shifting its weight from Arthur's to Clayton's shoulders. Look, his wife was sick and she died last year. His daughter doesn't talk to him. He's all alone. All he does is your case. He skipped his pills. He had a bad day. That's it. And you're somehow the authority on this? His last episode was eight years ago. I was there. I helped bring him home. I watched him get better. That's it. Come on, Karen. You didn't hire this guy because of his low-key regularity. You hired him because he's a killer and because he's brilliant and because he's crazy enough to grind away on a case like this for six years without a break. Excuse me, we pay for his time. I thought you wanted an explanation. But I'm getting ahead of myself, which in a way is appropriate because so does the movie. After the card game that opens the film, we follow Clayton as he is called out on some past midnight rescue mission to assist an important client. Then on the way home, Clayton pauses by the side of the road and while heading up a hill to look at some horses, his car explodes. Then the film flips back a few days to explain how Clayton got to be standing in a field crisis-stricken looking at a set of horses. I said the movie flips back because it would be a mistake to say the story is told in flashback. A flashback is a personal recollection or confession by one of the characters. This is not one of those films. For a start, several scenes take place without Clayton being present, so Clayton is not remembering what he did not witness. No, such films are not told in flashback, but operate by a non-linear structure. With regard to Michael Clayton, the correct term is in medias res, from the Latin, into the middle of things. Densely plotted with nuanced characters, Gilroy's dialogue is rich without being verbose. It is functional and yet layered. In fact, at his best, Gilroy has his characters speaking of one thing, while his structure has them unwittingly referring to something else entirely. An example of this is the game Clayton's young son spends his time playing. Realm and Conquest is a fantasy role-playing game where you assume a given character and enter into the arena of combat. I'll return to that later, but for now, let's look at another example, where Clayton tries to negotiate his debt with Gabe Zabel. It's not Clayton's debt, but that of his alcoholic brother, to whom Clayton has devoted years of his life trying to help. 
I had a wife who was a drunk. A beautiful girl, young girl. We lived like that. Even they do a program she did, I think, once two years. And then they slip, forget it. It's like you're strapped to a bomb. What's my time frame here? I don't know. I didn't think it'd be a problem. I'll ask. As I said, Gilroy's dialogue is nicely textured, but besides illustrating that Gilroy gives each character their own unique speech pattern, the wider truth of those lines is that Gable is speaking not about his wife, nor is he speaking of Clayton's brother. Instead, the line refers to Arthur Edens and the fallout of his nervous breakdown. And then, ultimately, that line rebounds so that it is actually referring to Clayton himself. Here's writer-director Tony Gilroy. He's really faced with a really unusual problem with Tom Wilkinson's character. He's very powerful, he's very smart, he may be out of his mind, but he's within that is this brilliant attorney. Everything that he says, um, you could very much make a case for being, um, you know, being part of the internal monologue that, that, that Michael Clayton is probably going through all the time. Gilroy's writing is sometimes so dexterous that he turns his central conceit inside out. Arthur Edens is getting sick, but his crisis is not so much a nervous breakdown as it is a spiritual expurgation of Unort's cancer-causing herbicide. His tornado of words that start the film is his erupting conscience, and since Clayton is the law firm's fix-it man, he's sent to corral Arthur. They speak a number of times, but Gilroy delays their most crucial confrontation until the middle of the plot. Michael, I have great affection for you, and you lead a very rich and interesting life, but you're a bag man, not an attorney. If your intention was to have me committed, you should have kept me in Wisconsin, where the arrest report, the videotape, and eyewitness accounts of my inappropriate behavior would have had jurisdictional relevance. I have no criminal record in the state of New York, and the single determining criterion for involuntary incarceration is danger. Is the defendant a danger to himself or others? You think you got the horses for that? Well, good luck and God bless, but I tell you this. The last place you want to see me is in court. I'm not the enemy. Then who are you? This scene marks Clayton being redirected towards being able to answer Arthur's question. So, Michael Clayton is not about him fixing his client's problems, clawing his way out of debt, saving Arthur's life, or even bringing you north to justice. No, what the film is really about brings me back to the game Clayton's son has been playing. Realm and Conquest? That game reflects Clayton's character. The movie is really about him forsaking the legal world and entering into a spiritual realm where the conquest of his demons will rest back to him his own soul. <laughs>